Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, that is the theme from The Irishman, uh, the brooding Robbie Robertson composition. Uh, and we are going to be talking about the uh, motion picture, uh, The Irishman, which is M- Martin Scorsese's, probably Martin Scorsese's final mobster film. Uh, he may have uh, many other masterpieces to come, but it doesn't feel like there'll be another one of these ever again for reasons that we'll probably uh, convey to you uh, without doing any spoilers. A little bit later in the show, we're going to have a conversation. I realize it seems like we have this kind of conversation a lot, but I think this one might be a little bit different. Uh, it's about the painter Gauguin. Uh, it's about an exhibition where they're really kind of reckoning with the fact that these beautiful uh, um, young Tahitian women that you're looking at are actually really young and he married two of them and he had syphilis and I'm like what do you do with all that because obviously we're looking at this these very lush paradisical images uh, behind which lies God knows what uh, so to do all that we need uh, absolutely the best people that we can get and actually we're using a nose format today which I uh, referred to as the deviated septum. We're going to have uh, Tom Breen, in, uh, a film critic and reporter from the New Haven Independent and host of WNHH Radio's Deep Focus. And he's down in New Haven with Jonathan McPants in our Gateway studio up in Hartford uh, with me and Kyone Wolf, uh, R. James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, and Irene Papoulis, who teaches writing at Trinity College. Um, James, I'm going to have you kick this off just because maybe even before we d- dive into the guts of this movie, I mean, even its release pattern, the nature of its production, all that stuff is fairly unusual, although verging a little bit more towards normalcy here in 2019. Well, it's interesting that now it's becoming somewhat normal in, in the sense that Netflix decided, well, they wanted to have more engagements actually in regular movie theaters where originally it had been announced that no, they were just going to go straight uh, straight onto Netflix and uh, there wouldn't be much opportunity to see it in theaters. But anybody in the industry knew that they were going to, a major filmmaker like this, at some point, some people would show it. And um, I think that the big chains that are resisting showing it, uh, the big theater chains, and not just here in this country, but around the world, are doing that because they are trying to protect the window, which is the space between the time the film gets shown in theaters and when it gets shown in streaming services. But streaming has become a huge factor and Netflix has a lot of money. There's now Apple and uh, everybody else is getting, Warner's, everybody is, is getting in on the act with streaming. And so streaming is becoming a huge factor. What the, I think is really interesting about this film is that uh, in terms of how it got made, Martin Scorsese is, you know, 
constantly arguing about cinema and essentially the cinema experience as it is in a theater, seeing it in the dark with strangers, watching it on a big screen. But he couldn't get anybody to make this film uh, because it was too costly. And interestingly, the people who took a chance on The Godfather, Paramount Pictures passed on it because they didn't want to pay for the software for the de-aging of the actors um, that was that they felt was too expensive and it was too untried. And so the major distributors basically weren't at home. And Netflix has a huge amount of money and urgently needed something to place its footprint in the market just as these other streaming services were starting. So it's a very strange sort of thing that... that um, it's really not finished playing out in term, literally in terms of the commercial aspects of the film. I'm, I'm kind of a dis- little disappointed that coming through Netflix, I think fewer people will see it. People will see it also in the wrong circumstance to me. I, I think seeing it alone, seeing it maybe in bits, people see it episodically. Um, I think that this is a very cinematic film. It's very much a part of Martin Scorsese's canon of filmmaking, and it looks amazing on a big screen. All right. So before we hear from uh, Irene and from Tom about this, uh, let's hear uh, from some of our friends uh, there uh, working on the other side of the law. Uh, This is a you're about to hear the phone call that kind of sets up the bromance that's kind of at the heart uh, of this movie. This movie kind of sprawls all over the place. It covers multiple decades. And um, but somewhere at the heart of it is um, uh, a relationship uh, between a a button man, uh, a guy who, who a hitman for uh, the mob, a guy named Frank Sheeran, uh, all these people existed in real life, uh, and Jimmy Hoffa, the famous Teamsters leader. Uh, so what you're going to hear is a phone call. It also involves two other characters. Uh, one of them is uh, Russell Buffalino, a mob figure played by Joe Pesci, and then Bobby Cannavale uh, as Felix Skinny Razor de Tullio. And so you'll, you'll hear all of them. But at the heart of this is uh, it's kind of when Harry met Sally, but it's really when Frank met Jimmy. Let me put McGee on the phone. Hello? Hey, my friend, how are you? Listen, I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm going to put him on the phone let you talk to him, okay? Right. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hi, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I I do. I do, and I uh, I also do my own carpentry. Ah, I'm glad to hear that. I understand you're a brother of mine. Yes, sir. Local 107, since 1947. Yeah. You know, uh, our friend speaks very highly of you. Well, thank you. He's not an easy man to please. Well, I do my best. So there's so much to say about all this. We should say, I, I don't know if I made clear or if I needed to make clear, the other voices, uh, Sheeran, of course, played by uh, Robert De Niro. Hoffa is played by Al Pacino. Uh, painting houses is mob slang for doing hits. Uh, carpentry is mob slang for getting rid of the body. Uh, so uh, that's what uh, Frank Sheeran, Bob De Niro, Robert De Niro has been doing all this time. So... I, you know, I have so many questions I want to ask all of you, but in some ways I maybe also want to get just some basic reactions. Uh, so we, we heard some of James's. Irene, how about you? How was this movie? For um, We should say the movie is also three and a half hours long, which is a challenge for just attention span, bladder, et cetera. 
I um yeah, I was worried about that, but it didn't I didn't feel like it was that long to me. I didn't ever have those mm-hmm. moments in the movie of, oh gosh, this is really dragging. I, I, I really loved it. But one thing that really struck me in that quote the the clip that you just played, um, I think I noticed it at the time, but it didn't really stick with me was that pause between, well, yeah, it's great to to meet you, even if it's over the phone, and then there's like a long pause. It's a little too long because the other person, De Niro, is supposed to Frank is supposed to say, you know, something jovial back, but he just doesn't have that that capacity. You know, he's just kind of he he's just not that kind of person that's going to be going to be like, yeah, ha ha, even if over the phone, yeah, but it is a kind of way that we're meeting, ha ha ha. He he just won't do that. He doesn't do that, which just seemed kind of interesting to me after in the light of the movie as a whole. Yeah, I should say, by the way, that um, James uh, is showing us in his studio this movie starting next Wednesday and running uh, into the weekend. Uh, this is the weekend after Thanksgiving. Uh, you should see it there. If you care about visual impact, you are, should see it on his screen just because the equipment's great and the sound's great and this is that's the way to do it. And don't worry that it's that it's long because you won't feel it. Right. Oh, that's true. Yeah, really. I mean, it doesn't feel as long as Silence, which was, <laughs> which I also saw at James's theater, which is a mere two hours and 44 minutes or something. This is the one about the priests in Japan. Uh, that one felt a lot longer than this. So time is relative. Einstein was right. So Tom uh, Tom Breen, uh, just yeah, give, give me your sort of basic reaction to this movie. Sure. Yeah, I too love the movie. And I think that that clip is, as I, I love Irene's reading, but I think that the pause is also stemmed from something that is so unique about the Irishman in Scorsese's um, career of of making films, especially his the subset of his career about gangs. I mean, this is the guy who made Goodfellas, Casino, Mean Streets, The Departed. This is well-worn territory for him. However, there is a, I mean, Scorsese is turning 77 this year, and De Niro is not far behind him, and Pacino's up there too. This is a, a gang movie uh, written and directed and shot with an incredible amount of not just uh, nostalgia, but kind of accumulated weariness and and grief from the kind of destruction that is wreaked by living your life through you know blind loyalty and always being you know paranoid about who is going to betray you next. Uh, Scorsese, his his mob movies, I think are are quite distinct from say The Godfather because they do not describe this really lavish kind of almost glamorous glamorous uh, shadow society created by the kind of nefarious networks of the world. These are all kind of working people, quite explicitly so here. I mean, the main character uh, and also the, you know, Jimmy Hoffa are union people. That That is how they are, are most famous. And that's what kind of connects them to the mob. These are people who do what they do out of a sense of kind of obligation to labor. And that's the relationship that they they build. And then ultimately, that proves to be an insufficient way to build a meaningful life when the labor that you do is, you know, killing people you think might be trying to double cross you. I should say, my, when you tell me you say that, my son is kind of an apostle of Scorsese. Uh, and the first time, he was probably too young to be watching this, but the first time he watched Goodfellas, if you remember one of the things at the beginning, Henry Hill, the Ray Liotta character, is shown as a boy. And he has this job where, like, the mobsters who are playing cards or something will send him off to go get them some cigarettes or buy them something or whatever. And my son's 
Ben's watching this and goes, and he says, "How do you get that job? How do you like? How do you how do you get a job like that where you just go and buy stuff for the mobsters?" And I said, "You know, you are extracting completely the wrong message from this movie, um, but it's possible to extract the wrong message from Goodfellas, James. I feel it's not possible to uh, to want to join in on much of anything that you see here. This is a very wintry kind of mob movie, as Tom has just suggested, and it's really for the most part about a bunch of people who come up empty. You know, I mean, they're yeah. they." they for all of what they put into this and all of the the criminal power they amass, there's just a tremendous emotional and moral vacuum that's kind of there all the time. Yeah, that's true. It's really kind of an end game. And the characters really play into that. Um, and there's a whole sort of subtext to it. It's kind of the, the thing that I sometimes wonder, you know, somebody who doesn't know the history, you know, the real history of these characters – um, and I wonder how many people that is, you know, like I, I was talking to some people about it and uh, the significance of the Irishman being the Irishman in the midst of an Italian mob uh, gang and uh, all of the implications of that and the role of Irish people in the United States and in organized crime and uh, the function of that character. And one of the most interesting things to me, I happened to see it abroad and uh, I after I saw the film, there were people who wanted to talk about the film afterwards. And it was really remarkable. Their reaction to it was to say, is that true? Did this really happen? And um, I was saying, you know, well, yes, it did. And not only did it happen, it actually has a direct connection to where we are now and how we have a reality show president and how we have all the craziness we have now. That actually people, you know, swallowed the idea of, you know, Jack Kennedy being this sort of innocent young person who was going to save the nation, completely ignoring who his father was and who his his role in organized crime and all of the connections that really get put together um, in this film are really sort of historic. And it is a movie, an entertaining movie that's entirely absorbing, but it's also a history lesson that is really extraordinary to me that few films actually go there for the entire length of the film, actually exploring the things that actually happened and putting them in place in a way that you remember, sort of if you experienced it, you remember the stories about constantly digging up parking lots and excavating places to try and find Jimmy Hoffa's body. And also at that same time, you know, sort of making the connections with Richard Nixon, with Watergate, all of the things that went on. This is like a Romain Clef kind of thing that 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 is is uh, reveals the history of since World War II of the United States and why we are where we are now. Well, yeah, I, I felt that. Although Irene, I didn't feel the way I do with with uh, an Oliver Stone movie, where I feel like he is trying to teach me a very specific version of history. It seemed to me that this was about the actual lives of these people, these men who who just screw up their lives, you know, in pursuit uh, of what looks like tremendous power, affluence, violence. Uh, and behind them the whole time, as James is suggesting, there's this kind of low hum of history, you know? So it's Bay of Pigs, and, and then it's the Kennedy assassination, uh, and then it's Watergate. You're always glimpsing that or when somebody will say Modine's pretty hot looking or something as they're looking at the TV set there's a way in which yeah they're participating in history but they're also they're just kind of they're on a slightly different ride maybe than the rest of us 
Definitely. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I, th- I, I love that there is a moment where the, a nursing home uh, nurse, you know, you, you, you don't know who, you know, do you know who Jimmy Hoffa? You know who that was? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. And so that's kind of a lot of people. Um, but I think, right, it's the people around, like, to me, the interesting thing is the people who get sucked into the power, you know, and why, like people who are not the power, like Frank, not a power player, but why does he get, how, how and why does he get sucked in? And there's an emotional truth, I think, to how he does um, that, uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I think it's very interesting to just, just for me, the I, I tend to look at the emotional side of a movie when I go to a movie, and I I think that his emotions and his reasons for being part of the whole thing are just kind of a beautiful testament to the horror of the emptiness of just being attached to someone who is, you know, you think maybe is going to take care of you, you know, it's... And- yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Tom. I, I I would say that the the opening scene is very instructive. I think of Martin Scorsese's interest in the kind of individual emotional lives and relationships of these characters, rather than providing a kind of alternate version of this history that yeah. again is is very fascinating to watch to watch play out. But this this opening scene with. Um, a, a camera tracking down the hallway of a nursing home, as Irene was saying, in a very similar move to maybe the mm-hmm. most famous shot in Scorsese's and an entire oeuvre, uh, kind of going into the Copacabana in Goodfellas as uh, you know, uh, Henry Hill is taking a, a date to this glamorous club, and we see him go in the back entrance, and uh, the crystals and Kiss Me is playing, and it, you know the audience and the girlfriend are swooning for this mysterious, young, attractive, well-dressed man as he seems to have and display every single thing, every person at his fingertips. Here we have that same camera motion and also the Five Satins, a, a New Haven group, by the way, um, <laughs> in the still of the night playing in a, a callback, but in an incredibly different setting, one that is kind of just rolling you know, by the you know, people coming in and out of their nursing home rooms. And then the camera, without a single cut, wheeling around the corner and looking at the back of Robert De Niro, Frank Sheeran's head in perfectly still he may be dead or a rock as far as far as the audience knows uh and then you know we see this this shell of a man this is not a a glamorous exciting wanting to be in this moment with frank sheeran it's uh this is where his his life has left him and now we're going to find out the various actions and decisions and happenstances that that brought him here walking out of the movie i turned to somebody i said the worst thing that could happen is you get whacked. The second worst thing that could happen is you don't get whacked. And then here's, here's where you wind up and nobody loves you. And, and you've, yeah. you've neglected to love anybody. Uh, and I want to just talk a little bit about the performances here. I mean, maybe I'll start with uh, you, Irene. You know, these performances, these are all kind of scenery-chewing actors. Um, although I felt as though even Pacino, who is the you know, the most egregious scenery chewer. I thought even he dialed down some of his tics and stuff like that. And I I was thinking of the famous moment in the movie Heat where Pacino and De Niro are together in this diner, you know, and and they're they're very much in character. But you can't forget who they are. And you feel like they can't forget who they are at that particular moment. Here, you know, these kind of protracted, weirdly pseudo-intimate moments between Hoffa and Sheeran where they're sitting around in their pajamas. (laughs) You know, and they're, you know, kind of unattractive bodies uh, in their hotel room. I really thought that they just really did. After a while, all that 
Pacino, De Niro, Mystique kind of faded away. I thought I was really kind of seeing these characters. I have to agree. Yeah, absolutely. And I love how one one description that A.O. Scott made was about Pesci was his lovely uh, walnut shell face, you know. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's so true. His face did look like a walnut shell. Um, and it, he didn't look like Joe Pesci in a way. Or, yeah, I, I mean, so I guess I'm just agreeing there that the acting was very um, – Beautiful. Well, well, I, yeah, let's say, uh, there might be some some uh, differences of opinion having to do also with all the alterations of them that had to go on. Well, right? I, yeah, I was about to say, you know, I, I think that the movie has a sort of almost an anime of the end game of all of this that has gone before with these characters, mm-hmm. which is also overlaid over the real lives of these actors. Mm-hmm. And also you brought in this software, which is making them look younger. And while I think it's quite amazing what is done in terms of anti-aging and by changing things, there is a kind of, um, I don't know whether it's perhaps because the software hasn't reached where it needs to be, but there's a kind of mask-like quality at times to Mm -hmm. me, which is like they are in a way kind of ciphers, but that's part of the anime of the movie in a sense of this, the, the end the end is coming kind of thing and that that that's how the movie starts of course uh, the, the, with with that scene but it there's something more to it than that and there's also a kind of uh, an, another thing that i think that the software doesn't really take account of is that you, you can't just rely on the faces and people move the way they move you know and so you can't put a young face on 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 an actor who's actually not going to be able to move like a young person. Yeah. And um, being a little older myself, I mean, I feel that myself. You just don't move the same way. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, this raises lots of questions about the future of film and the future of filmmaking um, and the whole idea of using avatars for actors. You know, saying, "Well, you know, will we get it? Could we get an agreement from?" Uh, Robert De Niro to just use an avatar who made him sort of entirely look young. What? How much money would he accept to do that? Eventually, also, that question might be asked. And how important is it that it was? I mean, I guess he he wanted his friends, and he, those actors had to be in it. But what if he had gotten young actors and aged them, which is much easier? Well, would, <laughs> would the movie have been? Yeah. I want to play same? another. I want to play another clip here, so people can kind of get a sense of the um, the dialogue here. And I want Tom to say a little bit uh, about how the acting landed with him. So you're going to hear a clip from the movie. Uh, you're going to hear uh, the British actor Stephen Graham uh, playing uh, Tony Pro, Anthony Provenzano, uh, Al Pacino as uh, Jimmy Hoffa, uh, and Robert De Niro as Frank Sheeran. This is a, um, a moment has been brokered between Jimmy Hoffa and Tony Pro. They have been enemies, and there's an attempt to sort of have a little Camp David moment where maybe they can get along better. People freezing to death in New York, and look at us. Hey, John. Hey. Why we don't live here all year round is what I want to know. Beautiful. It's summer. What? It's summer. People aren't freezing to death in New York. It's summer. In my mind, it's always eight degrees in New York. I'm making a point. Making a point? Making a point dressing like that? Is that you dress for me? And this is how you dress in Florida? In a suit? For a meeting? Anywhere. Florida, Timbuktu, I just in a suit. For a meeting. And you're late. What? You're late. And it was traffic. Yeah, it's traffic. <laughs> Wasn't it traffic? You give me traffic. traffic. 
What do you what, what do you want from us? It was bump bump. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's it's bad, you know. Traffic. I never waited for anyone who was late more than ten minutes in my life. I'd say fifteen. Fifteen's right. No, ten. I don't think so. Ten's not enough. You have to take traffic into account. That's that's what I'm doing. I'm taking traffic into account. That's why it's ten. I still say fifteen. No, ten. Fine, we. We disagree on that. Well, they disagree on a lot of things. Tom uh, Pacino's uh, Hoffa is also this very, it's a kind of a mannered performance that does involve this obsession with timeliness, which I, I assume is historically absolutely correct. Why wouldn't it be? Uh, and a lot of ice cream eating, uh, as you pointed out in your emails to us. So I, how did the acting work for you? Well, again, it's, it's such a wonderful experience to um, relive this movie just through the audio because I think it really emphasizes how, how somber this movie is, even in its most screwball comedy moments. I mean, what we just listened to was, you know, straight out of a 30s comedy. Granted, this, you know, this is a mob movie, but of the three and a half hours, um, there's probably five minutes maybe of violence in this movie and the other three hours and 25 minutes our characters often in vain trying to talk each other out of what they see as inevitable violence to come. Um, but I think that that clip that you just played is a perfect example of, again, the scenery chewer of all scenery chewer, Al Pacino. Um, you know, he I don't even know if he, he raised his voice. And yet we get the indignation. We get that odd intonation, you know, the accent that that he's adopting to be uh, Jimmy Hoffa. But we, we don't get him kind of standing and screaming, although there's a little bit of that in this movie. But between Pacino and uh, and De Niro and, and Pesci, I think they all give incredibly uh, both subtle and subdued, but not in a bad way, performances. And that, again, this is, you know, a movie defined by these characters very quickly aging into senescence and the weariness needs to come through even at the funniest of moments. And I, I love, I love Pacino's performance. I mean, also the way that he, you know, cuts and eats this, you know, dripping red steak at maybe the height of Frank Sheeran's career when he has this kind of this celebratory party for becoming the union local leader or whatever it is. And, and all Pacino, all uh, De Niro's character can do is just fret over one of his friends being angry and making kind of angry, chopping gestures at at another friend. I think the the very kind of minute interpersonal relations and the somberness of it all uh, amidst this, you know, Scorsese is as energetic of a filmmaker as he's ever been. I mean, the camera's constantly swooping down from on high and zeroing in almost like a sniper or something, especially in the courtroom sequences or uh, the RFK interrogation sequences. And yet the characters provide just the perfect counterpoint. These are people whose, whose lives are not as energetic and as exciting as they want it to be, it's just heading towards whacked or, or not whacked. So I, I want to say uh, Jonathan McPants, our producer, made the point, I, I think it's a great point too, that where Scorsese would have shown us moments of visceral violence in the past, instead he just types it onto the screen. There's just, you see somebody and it's a, some figure and it just says, you know, so-and-so, uh, just a shot in the head six times outside Umberto's uh, restaurant in Little Italy in 1963. I mean, it's just like, that's it. <laughs> not, he's not even going to bother showing you that you already seen what that looks like anyway this, this is what happens to this guy this is what happens to this guy and it's n- almost never good there are a few people who who um who die peaceful deaths but not many um and so, tell us that at the very introduction to each character you right. know no matter how funny the conversations are and many of them are funny and absurd and you know what these these you know overgrown babies are talking about is just so silly mm-hmm. but then we know that at the end of it almost all of them you know almost every text says 
died 1980 sometime, shot in the head. Uh, I want to bring up two, uh, we have to sort of wrap up pretty soon so we can get to the other topic, but I want to bring up two criticisms of the movie and just hear what you think. So James, I mean, there are just a lot of people who say three and a half hours is three and a half hours, and that means you didn't edit, that means you didn't make choices, that means you'd rather have us sit there for three and a half hours than figure out how to make this a slightly shorter movie. Does this, does the movie earn its length? Oh, totally to me. I mean, I think it's a perfect example of of a measured narrative that really tells its story at uh, the sort of pace that it draws you in. And actually, that scene that uh, you played and uh, and what Tom was talking about, the, the whole nature of the way the needling back and forth about trivia is there's this sort of implication that some horrible violent act is going to follow this <laughs> and it sort of raises the temperature in a very quiet way and I think the very pacing of the film plays into that and I, for me I didn't feel the length of it unfortunately I think that people do have a sense of I guess consuming media now consuming a film and unfortunately Netflix has this absurd idea of 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 speeded up delivery mm-hmm. where you can watch the film you know so you can right. watch Citizen Kane in 30 30 minutes um, don't with, do that I mean don't yeah don't do that I mean really envelop yourself in this film because it really is about storytelling that is actually absorbing you into that world I have to say when I was watching it I didn't for a minute sort of feel that I was disconnected or dozing off or feeling that I wanted to wanted the film to end it really was absorbing in that way that uh, that that a masterfully made piece of art whether it's written or whether it's film or whatever it is really engages you and you you sort of celebrate that sense of being connected to it over that three and a half hours, and it seems like nothing. All right, so I'm going to let that answer be our answer. Uh, I think it uh, is a pretty good answer for me anyway. And I'm going to ask you guys uh, quickly about one other criticism, which I heard Stephen Metcalf from Slate uh, on the Slate uh, Culture Gab Fest make, and he's always so discerning, and I always want to think about what he says. I, I don't necessarily agree with his take on this movie, but you can never dismiss it. So, Irene, one of his arguments was that Frank Sheeran, as played by Robert De Niro, is not an interesting enough person to form a centerpiece for a movie of this magnitude, that he has essentially no inner life. You know, he's not an interesting guy. He's not a self-reflective guy. Um, He's just kind of a guy drifting through recent modern history uh, in, in committing acts of violence about which he also doesn't seem to have much capacity for self-analysis. Um, well, that's a very interesting criticism, and it's prob- he's probably not a guy that I would want to hang out with. But um, at the same time, I feel like he has a part of part of the interesting thing for the about the movie for me is was trying to figure out what did motivate him, and I really did come to an answer eventually by the end of the movie with that uh, you know about what he's motivated by because he has I think a certain passion, and I thought it was kind of heart wrenching. You know, we didn't say anything about the women or the lack thereof in the mm-hmm. film, but I think the, it's it's kind of interesting how the women were in the film. They were just kind of out there. They were very much objectified. But then there's his daughter who's, you know, um, and um, and some people criticized her it for the, Scorsese for not developing her more, the, developing the women more. But it wasn't a film about the women, but they had a really strong role. Um, anyway, without giving a spoiler, but I would say that there's there's the question of what motivates him and what is where is his passion, what do, what is what is going on inside there is 
interesting, and you will probably or maybe have some kind of answer to that after the movie. All right. I, I, I think, although I'm dying to hear what Tom says, I'm going to screw up the clock if I, if I don't break right now. So, so we'll have time on the other side to talk about it. I, what I think is going to be a pretty interesting conversation. Let's do that. So that's Jill Solbiel, a friend of the show, uh, setting us up for this conversation. Perfect. Uh, yeah, exactly. Perfect song. It is the perfect song. Uh, so, uh, yes, if you do uh, an exhibition uh, of, of Paul Gauguin's uh, paintings uh, almost anywhere, you'll get lines. People still love these paintings, love the lush colors, colors that just kind of moistness that flows off the canvas into our eyes. But increasingly, the museums that do these um, in the international museum world are starting to wonder what it is they're actually showing, because we now know that uh, Gauguin took advantage of his his many advantages uh, in, in a colonialized world. And so, yes, he seems to have married two of the very young women he painted. Uh, he also uh, spread syphilis, not the first European to do that. But um, so here's this kind of old guy with weeping sores on his legs from eczema and syphilis in his body showing up and marrying 13 year old girls. And so what are we looking at? Uh, So the New York Times uh, asked this week, is it time Gauguin got canceled? Tom Breen, I feel like canceled is the wrong word. I mean, we talk about cancel culture all the time. And I, I don't even I think that's the wrong question. But there is some kind of question here about what we do with this iconic and some would say pretty much indispensable art, art that makes up some of the fabric of our civilization. It's it's a, a great New York Times article. I've, I've got it pulled up now. It's written by Far, Farah Nayeri. And it while focused on Gauguin, it really does, you know, broach this larger topic of um, what happens, you know, when an artist has made his or her art. Does it belong to the public and no longer the creator? And we judge the material just based on, on what we see and and hear and experience, or do we have to, you know, keep thinking about the person who created it, the context in which they created? And I, f- I feel like, you know, whether or not cancel culture is the the right phrase to describe this, I feel like this is definitely this has been uh, the the most productive thing for my experience of Gauguin because I went into this, you know, I saw the the link and I thought, oh, I've never really liked Gauguin, you know, if his contemporaries give me Van Gogh or Cezanne any day, like they communicate so much more about the interiority of both the artists and who they're depicting than I ever got from Gauguin, but thanks to this this article and this you know I've looked at I've looked at many more Gauguin paintings than I had previously seen and I've been riveted there is an incredible beauty and sensitivity to his pictures that are rendered horrendous by thinking about you know what this man did in in marrying quote unquote 12 and 13 year old 
girls. I think, <laughs> again, this is the, the best possible thing or best possible way I think right now our culture can be interacting with someone like Gauguin, who is not imperfect, seems to be terrible, and yet his art clearly has a resonance these hundred years later, and I'm grateful to be able to keep looking at and thinking about the art while also putting it in the context of, again, how reprehensible uh, this person was who made it. Irene, as we were emailing around about this, you said something that really leapt off the screen uh, at me. You said that you saw something different in the faces of these women now. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, but I, yeah, I sort of went through a little evolution in thinking about this from my first thought was like, come on, just let, let the paintings just be there to reading a little bit more and thinking, oh my gosh, he was horrible. They were 13 years old. This is horrible. We should never look at the paintings again. Back to saying, no, we have to look at them in this larger context where we think about it. And that, but, and then as I looked back at them, I used to, I, I had looked a lot about, at Gauguin, you know, in my, in my life and with a certain kind of appreciation and, uh, you know, and when, but when I looked at the women's faces in the paintings, I saw something that I, you know, like this, I saw contempt that it had never occurred to me that they had before. I knew they were sort of, there was like a shyness or a timidity to them, to their faces. But now I see contempt and I feel like I'll never be able to see them, to not see that anymore, which enhances my viewing of the painting more than more than detracts from it. Yeah, to me, uh, James, when she wrote that, I thought, well, that's really what art should be, right? You look at the same painting at different phases of your life, and the painting speaks to you differently because, in fact, you're speaking differently. Right, and I mean, what you're talking about is an insight uh, that you have that is based on many things other than the picture itself. And I think one of the things about using a term like canceling Gauguin is it's that's a total red herring. I mean, what you're really talking about is a serious problem with the whole notion of so-called Western civilization and right. standards of art and how art was approved of and not approved of. I mean, the, the list is huge of artists who've exploited and who've been, uh, I mean, you look at the reality of Jeffrey Epstein and what he was doing and how this was, uh, he wasn't even an artist, but he was, he was given approval to do what he did and he got away with it until he didn't. And I think that in the case of these artists, first of all, I would say we need to hire a new crew of people who write the notes on the wall next to the pictures, <laughs> who to me are infuriating. I mean, I, I remember one particular one I saw in Italy where there was a picture of a very young woman squeezing breast milk out of her breast into the mouth of a monk. And there was no mention whatsoever of what that might mean in sexual terms of what that was about. The, the, the actual notes written by the so-called scholar were talking about highfalutin notions <laughs> about the nature of the relationship between religion and devotion. And I mean, these things you have to tell the truth about. But you also have to go back to the origins of these things, like, for instance, recognizing that slavery is the basis of American society, and that's where the money for the banks and the money came from. And in the case of these painters who are uh, just one example of these artists, they were sanctioned by a particular view of the world which saw it as a place to plunder and exploit, and that included in particular white men exploiting young, dark-skinned girls. And this was 
quite fine because it was exotic and exciting. And I think that that is the conversation we have to have. So cancelling the artist is not the conversation at all. Well, I I think some of the time arises from a model that I'm not sure is even in place anymore. And that model is kind of, I mean, certainly when I was young, um, you know, you were told that you were going to a museum and you were going to look at the work of great masters and you were going to be awed by their tremendous talent. And that was sort of your job was to figure out why this was so great. <laughs> and, I, you know, I mean, I don't think we're even we should be invited to, to, to think that way. I think we should be invited to ask a lot of questions about what it is we're looking at and the way that all of you Absolutely. guys are all that you guys yeah. are suggesting. That's yeah. the, the truth is everybody ought to be Irene looking, you know, two or three times at the same painting over the course of your life and going, oh, what's really happening here? Yeah, what, everybody what a, ought to be me. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah not, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think this is uh, maybe too demanding of a, a framework, but I think that it's incumbent upon us as, you know, viewers and, uh, and thinkers about art to not just look at the entire, you know, work of one artist. I know I was talking a lot about, you know, the entire, you know, four or five decade career of Martin Scorsese, but also at, you know, individual entries. I mean, I can say I'm just going through this article, which has, you know, a number of examples of Gauguin paintings. There are some that, again, I find pretty stunning. The one at the top of the article, Tehamana has many parents. Um, I could look at and think about for days, but then there's one a little bit further down with Gauguin uh, just, you know, leering over these two uh, naked young girls in this in, you know, incredibly lush and exoticized environment, a work that I don't think it should be canceled, whatever that means. But I do think that that work is much more transparently reflective of that whole, uh, everything that James was talking about before, that permission to rape and pillage uh, for the sake of the pleasure of a very select few. And I you think can, works and you can see that, how trapped they are. Like they feel, they seem exactly. trapped, those two women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so I mean, it sounds like so it sounds like Irene does get something a bit more out of it just by seeing that trappedness in their eyes. See, I, I see that, and and I see nothing but the you know the repulsiveness of this one one person. But um, uh-huh. yeah, I, I think it's incumbent to look at the individual works as much as the artist as a whole. Absolutely. So I mean, look, as I, I said in an email, you know, you could mount comparable objections to Degas, who was by the account of his fellow painter Pissarro, a ferocious anti-Semite. Caravaggio was this completely out-of-control guy who was the, you know, kind of Baroque equivalent of an internet troll, killed a man possibly over a dispute over the affections of a prostitute. I mean, oh, on and on. And these works still, they are, you can't get rid of them. I don't think you can cancel them. They're already here. They they put down roots. But you have to figure out how to deal with them, too. There's also one another aspect of this, which is the financial value of these works of art. Uh, we give these enormous values to these paintings. And it's like, uh, I, I mean, I look at paintings by Picasso now, and I'm, I'm repulsed by so much of it. And mm. I think that uh, the, the fact that, okay, somebody pays $200 million for a painting, which actually contains this statement about exploitation and, and, and rape and pillage and whatever else, it's a shocking failure to have the conversation about what we really value, what we should be valuing as human beings. And we were, we've been, we were hoodwinked, you know. I feel like so much of what we were taught, or like what I was taught in school, was yeah. like a like a, a fantasy vision, you know. Yep. Like the North was good and the yeah. South was bad, yep. and then you find out no, there were slaves all over the North. By the and, way, by the way, Whistler, a yeah. terrible, terrible <laughs> American racist and anti-abolitionist. That's right. and, more of a white supremacist, really, than a racist. And so, we have I mean, to 
to learn that. Yeah, we have to know these things. All right, great conversation. Let's take a break so you'll have time to make some recommendations. No one knows the joy when you create by definition something out of nothing. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, shot in the pants six times outside of Dairy Queen in Erie, Pennsylvania. And by me, Kyone Wolf. I got shot in the head five times today, and I'm actually thinking of going home early. The part of Bill Curry was played by Polly Walnuts, who got shot in the nose and the neck and the walnuts in 1994 at a Little Caesars in Manchester, Connecticut. On Monday, we'll be back with The Scramble, which, if there's justice in the world, will be hosted by Fiona Hill. And now. Back to Colin. Right. And I'm here uh, in our Hartford studio with James Hanley and Irene Papoulis. Uh, Tom Breen is in the New Haven studio uh, with uh, <coughs> producer Jonathan McPants. And uh, I just quickly will remind you that James's Sydney studio will be showing The Irishman starting Wednesday and it's running through all the way through the end of Saturday, right? Saturday, yeah. right. Saturday evening. So you should see it there. I mean, we all saw it somewhere else because we had to. But um, the um, And I also want to say that one of our cherished panelists, Carolyn Payne, is launching the 10th year of her amazing and very much fun, uh, Nutcracker Sweet and Spicy. Uh, so that's uh, uh, December 20th through 22nd at the Wadsworth in Hartford. Uh, you can visit conetticdance.com for tickets and info about it and stuff like that. But you should go. It's, it's fun every year. And I think, well, I know for a fact Carolyn has some new tricks up her sleeve for the 10th year. All right. Let's uh, make some recommendations here. Irene, why don't you get us going? Um well, I've just, uh, like a lot of people, I've been, I've had impeachment fever and um, all week and watching all that stuff. And so the only thing I have to endorse is this uh, website called Wonkette, W-O-N-K-E-T-T-E, that has, um, not only did it have live blogging, but also articles that really are actually filled with interesting news, but in a very, very snarky sort of off-color way. And if you are if you like that kind of thing, it's a good way to keep up with things. Right. One of the early national blogs, too. Yeah. It's been a long, mm-hmm. around yeah. a long time now. Uh, James Hanley, how about you? Well, I've been watching the hearings, too. And I have to say that watching the day yesterday of uh, Fiona Hill and David Holmes, I it was in the midst of such a maelstrom of excrement that is coming out of Washington these days to actually watch two intelligent people who could actually intellectually parse what was going on and tell a story and be honest and actually gain the attention of the public, I think was absolutely remarkable and reassuring amid such a non-reassuring time. So that's uh, it, it really affected me watching that. It's also interesting, like uh, going from Watching the hearings, uh, this didn't happen to you, but it happened to me and Irene, I think, and maybe Tom. No, Tom went in the morning. But like going from the hearings, running in to see the Irishman, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. and then realizing it's three and a half hours long, like, you know, the president could be impeached by the time I get out of this thing. It's such a long movie. But then all that sort of comparable stuff, we're having this conversation on the anniversary of JFK's assassination, too. There's sort of that sense that you're seeing the latest chapter of this kind of history on your home television screen. You're running off to the movies where all that kind of stuff is happening. And uh, it's about following. Followers, you also, know, yes, the Irishman much. is about followers too. All right, Tom Breen, yeah. what are you going to recommend? 
it's well, it's not an impeachment recommendation, but I'll see if I can tie it in. It's a, a 2011 <laughs> book called Conversations with Scorsese, uh, mm. written by the late Time Magazine film critic Richard Schickel. Uh, and there, you know, there are many books like this. Uh, maybe uh, Hitchcock Truffaut is one of the more famous ones of uh, film critics talking with directors they love about their entire filmography and then about everything else that they love. And Richard Schickel and Martin Scorsese both being true film historians, they have a lot to talk about. So they go through you know every single one of Martin Scorsese's movies but they also talk about um, you know just their absolute love for the history of cinema and I you know I read the you know you know the just a couple page chapters uh, and all written out as a dialogue uh, their their conversation about Goodfellas is fascinating and the tie into the impeachment is that you know Scorsese at the time of this book still marvels at how this character he created kind of adapted from a book of Henry Hill by the end of the movie despite the incredible fall from grace he's the only thing that he laments is that he's no longer part of this like last exciting lifestyle that he's he didn't learn like this character at the center of the story didn't learn a single lesson that Scorsese is you know you know pretty meticulously documenting over the last hour of that movie and to see uh you know the Gordon Somlins of the world and and everyone else just just almost like having fun up there you know they they're they're giddy they got the whole world at their fingertips and they're going to bring down as many people as they can but they love the spotlight on them uh, Scorsese knows that Henry Hill is all about that too. So, uh, and Jonathan McPants McPan- just typed into my screen. I was just reading David Thompson's Scorsese on Scorsese last night. Also great. So, um, I will quickly say that uh, apropos of these kinds of endorsements, we've we realize how transfixed everybody is, or a lot of people are by all this. And so, uh, what we're going to do starting on de- December seventh is uh, launch a temporary new version of our show that will run on Saturdays and run as a podcast. Uh, it's uh, we believe it's cool. We're going to call it Pardon Me: uh, A Guide to the Impeachments. To the, to the impeachment, and we will. So we will be recapping each uh, week's impeachment on Saturdays at noon, but also as a podcast starts uh, December seventh. Uh, wow! And so we're working that's on good. that's one of the things we're working on in house here. Um, I think the thing, I'm going to recommend two books that I listen to on audiobooks. I love audiobooks, but um, these two in particular because I think they also speak to this moment. One of them is Margaret Atwood's latest book, The Testaments, uh, which you know obviously is about a dysfunctional dystopian society. In my opinion, they're all dysfunctional. <laughs> They're all somewhat dystopian, but uh, this one's really bad, Gilead, and it takes that story forward. She's just a great storyteller. People forget that. She's just she can really tell a ripping good yarn if she wants to, uh, and and that's what she does here. The audiobook in, in, uh, includes is uh, there's three voices done using it. One of them is Bryce Dallas Howard, but one of them is Anne Dowd, who actually does play the terrible Aunt Lydia in the Hulu version of Handmaid's Tale. So uh, it's interesting to hear that voice. And then Le Carre's new book. Uh, an Agent Running in the Field. Uh, this is an amazing book. And Le Carre, at age 88, voices his own audiobooks. And he does accents and he creates you know, specific voices for specific characters. And usually authors aren't that good at doing their own audiobook. This man clearly is a ham, in addition to having been you know, an actual intelligence guy in the past. And the book is very much about something you see in The Irishman, too, which is about how if we don't make important bonds of love and trust in our lives, we're not going to be able to cope with some of these larger institutional problems. You know, you, you've got to have that. You know, you can't just go running off. Most of us, anyway, can't go running off on a white charger or tilting our lance all alone. So anyway, thanks so, so much to uh, these wonderful panelists, Irene Papoulis, James Hanley, and uh, Tom Breen. Thanks to Jonathan McPants. We'll be back on Monday. Thanks to Kion Wolf, too. <laughs> 